Hey folks, before we begin the show, a couple of housekeeping notes for those of you on the podcast. You can call into my program Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Time by calling 1-800-WSB-TALK and join the program. You can listen live at wsbradio.com or stick with the podcast if you like. Also, remember to check out our weekly sponsor for the podcast. If you go to them following the link, this week's sponsor is blueapron.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. It is a fantastic way to help the resurgent. The more you guys shop with our sponsors, the more sponsors we get, the more it helps the resurgent long-term. It also helps the Eric Erickson Show. Thanks so much for listening. Now on with the show. Good evening, it's Eric Erickson from the WSB Live Lounge uh, with more on our series of interviews with the candidates running for governor in Georgia. Joining me tonight, uh, one of the newest candidates running for governor in Georgia, a Republican, uh, Clay Tippins. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for letting me be here. So you probably have the most intriguing background of any of the candidates running for governor, uh, being a former Navy SEAL. Um, first of all, and you and I have talked about this before, but why why SEALs? I think the first thing was just why serve? And I want to be a commando. I mean, that was just something I was pretty fascinated by from an early age. I think I read every single book on the Second World War that was in the Gwinnett County Library System. And uh, as I told you, you know, I had a chance to travel internationally as a swimmer. I was in Cuba, for example, before I went to college. And I still remember sort of making mental photographs of the cliffs, just thinking, well, you never know, one day I'll be back. I mean, just it was always something that was in me. And once I decided I want to be a commando, then you want to do something really hard. You want to be a bear, be a grizzly, and SEAL training's tough. And I was a water guy. So, you know, you sort of default to the SEALs. You went to Stanford, correct? I did. And so from Stanford to the SEALs, how long were you a SEAL? Well, I did it twice. Once when I was in my 20s, and again, when I was kind of in my 40s, I'm still in my 40s now. Mm -hmm. So the first time I was in from 96 to 2000, and I went into the inactive reserves, and then I went back in to the active reserves in 2010, and volunteered to go to Iraq, and, and went over there in 2015. And then I went back into the inactive in, I guess it was late 2016. Now, when you're not a Navy SEAL, what do you do for a living? <laughs> well, there's, a, there's probably other things besides for the living part, like, you know, chase 14-year-olds <laughs> around, 10-year-olds around, all the yeah. other stuff as well. I, uh, I'm a technology business guy. So when I got out of the SEALs the first time, um, I had a lot of, you know, friends that worked in technology in Silicon Valley. And so that was sort of a logical, you know, re-entry into the normal world step. So I worked for a couple of Silicon Valley tech companies. And I eventually ended up at a company called Capgemini and stayed there for a number of years and worked my way up through the ranks. And I, until I decided to do this and turned over my business, I was running a, a large technology business for him. So, Wow. Okay. So the question that everyone wants to know about the other candidates, they want to know about particularly about you, why give all that up to run for governor? So we talked a little bit about kind of where we think the world is, you know, off camera before we started. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the good book in the book of Genesis, there's a story where Joseph stands before Pharaoh and he's asked to interpret a dream. And he says, there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. 
And he said, we need to do some things now to get ready for then. And if I were to talk about kind of a moment I had like that in my business career, I was at the Consumer Electronics Show a few years ago, and I took a picture in front of the Kodak booth because Kodak was, you know, an iconic, great American corporation for a century. And it, they had the largest booth there, at least by looks, and that was exactly when they declared bankruptcy. Because any organization that keeps doing the same thing for too long, you know, it, it ends up trending down. And what I believe is that Georgia is in great shape. Governor Deal's done a great job. Some things different to future-proof the state. You know, there's a handful of things. Uh, if you look at our national debt, I mean, I, I was a tech business guy, and everything about how we work and how we learn, how we live, is changing faster now than it ever has in history. It's changed more in the last 10 years than the previous 100, and it'll change again in the next 10 as much as it's changed in the past 10. And I'm of a belief that government hasn't changed in a big way in over 50 years. I mean, if you think about our grandparents' generation. They came back from the Second World War, and they basically reset everything. I mean, guys like Eisenhower had an idea of building an interstate system. That was big. If you study the history of education and healthcare, we redid all of that between 1946 and pick a year, 1965. Since then, I don't think you could argue that we've seen big fundamental changes. And when you look at national debt barreling down towards us, there's going to be a moment of reckoning in the next few years. I, I, I wake up every day surprised it hasn't happened. And I just hit a point where I sort of thought, you know, when I'm an old man, I'll look back at the 2020s, and that's going to be a decade where government is forced to change, innovate, improve, get smarter, get cheaper, get more frugal, get better, very, very quickly. Because society's left it behind. It's not very accountable and responsive to our needs. And debt's going to make it change because we won't be able to afford the things that we do now. So, and it's going to be a time of change, and I wanted to bring a fresh perspective to that. The national debt issue really is is at the federal level. Oh, what do you foresee being able to do as governor to shape that picture? I think if you look at where the great innovations have come from, they tend to come from executives, mayors, governors. So that's the first thing is, I mean, big improvements, that's typically where you see them percolate up from. That's one reason that this is relevant. The second reason is if you look at our state budget, we get a lot of matching funds from the federal government for the most important programs. The third thing is the governors are responsible for administering a lot of the federal dollars. So the way I see it, I think the governor of each of the 50 states sits on the front line of what I think is going to be a fight to change government so that we can afford how we do things today and improve those things so it can be better in the future. And again, I think every mayor Every governor at some point is going to be waking up every day saying, how in the world do I keep doing these things for my people and how do I make it better? How do I improve those things? How do I make them accountable to taxpayers? How do I take advantages of changes in technology, medicine, science to change the fundamental way of how we do stuff? And well, that's why I jumped in. Along those, those lines, particularly on, on the fiscal picture, one of the questions that we got from a ton of listeners is on the issue of restructuring how Georgia collects and manages taxes in the state. Um, there seems to be a strong 
at least consensus among people that I encounter on a daily basis that you've got Texas and Tennessee and Florida all have just sales tax, no income tax. South Carolina has cut its tax. Georgia portrays itself as relatively tax-friendly and yet is having to lure businesses here with huge packages. Sure. Uh, what do we do to reform the state's tax picture, or do we just leave everything as it is with the income tax? No, I, I don't think that you leave it as is. And the number you know you can put in your head is, is three-something percent. That's where I'd like to get the state to. But I also want to talk about how you do that. So if you look, as I mean, sometime in the next hour or so, we'll get into what are some of the things that we need to improve and invest in. But at the end of the day, we've got to answer the question, how in the world do you pay for those things? How do you talk about doing anything different and better and still talk about reducing taxes? And I, I, I've found that people that run for office, people that hold office, I feel like the answers are light on that. I don't feel like they're transparent. I don't feel like they're specific on that. And what I think we've seen governors do when there's recessions is figure out a way to tighten the belt. We cut the state budget a lot in 2009 because we had to. And what I think is a pretty big idea is can we do that while times are good and we're flush with cash? And what I believe is that there's some specific things going on in the next four to five years that create a once-in-generation opportunity to do that. And I don't use those words lightly. I truly think it's once-in-generation. And I'll give you just two of them. First one is the retirement of baby boomers. I mean, one of the biggest things that's happened in this whole society, George and otherwise, in the past decades, is baby boomers. And every corporation in America is facing this. They're figuring out as baby boomers retire, it's a catalyst for change. They can move resources around, they can invest in different things, they can change how they do things. In our state right now, if I've got my numbers off the top of my head correctly, almost 15,000 of our state employees will become retirement eligible by 2020. It's roughly 20, 25% of the state workforce. That's a catalyst. You gotta do something about that. We've never had that happen before. Governor Deal didn't have it. The next governor won't have it. It hits now. So it's a catalyst to say, let's do it different. Let's move some of those headcount into the highest impact area for me. That's things like early reading, first, second, third grade. That's an example of moving things around. I think some of the roles you can just figure out a way to do without. I think some of them you can do with technology. Some of them you can consolidate. I mean, every big organization in America is having to come to grips with this. Every corporation in Georgia is coming to grips with it. And instead of running from it, I think we have an opportunity to steer into it and use that as a generational catalyst for change, not just to train government it better to redo our priorities you get to do that in the next four years and I felt like that my background as a seal and as a businessman makes me have a unique perspective to bring to that and I bring a fresh perspective I'm not walking in holding an interest saying we have to do it this way I walk in with a fresh perspective so we have right now essentially a windfall due to federal tax reform uh, we're going to be getting a lot of money. And the governor initially said he didn't want to touch it until we made sure we weren't counting our chickens before they were hatched. Now it looks like there's movement in the legislature. They do want to do something. Um, would you want to use that windfall to to give tax cuts or see where we need to allocate to kind of restructure priorities? First of all, I think tax codes that tend to be simpler, flatter, or better. So, and, and I haven't digested the details of what was discussed today, but what I understand is some of it would be in a tax deduction, other would be in itemized deductions, that sort of thing. 
what, what I'd like to see is you take that and you put it towards a straight income tax deduction. But I think there's other things. I mean, again, my objective would be, before I'm done as governor, to shrink our state budget on an apples to apples basis by two to three billion dollars. You take that piece, you put that alongside the Trump tax cut benefit that we put towards it. Those are some of the steps that you take to get to three something percent. I think those are, I think those are aggressive but achievable goals. So that's the approach that I would take. Okay. When we come back, we're going to get into Clay Tippin's vision for Georgia if he's governor, the urban-rural divide, and how to reform education in the state of Georgia. I'm Eric Erickson. You're listening to WSB. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here in the WSB Live Lounge. You can follow along if you like at uh, facebook.com slash WSB Radio. Uh, I'm interviewing Clay Tippins, the Republican running for governor in Georgia. Now, you said you wanted to finish off, be wonky, yeah. generational opportunity for Georgia. You got to indulge me. All right. So, all right. So we talked about baby boomers retiring as a catalyst. The other catalyst that I think gives you a chance to transform and shake up government is the power data which again, this is a thing most corporations, even in the military, I mean, the power to use data to take down network crime, it's like nothing we've ever seen in history. And I'll give you a very tangible, specific example. So disability, I had people sort of chirp in my ear that live you know, well outside of Atlanta saying that the thing that people in their community are upset about and up in arms are, because I expected to hear about the need for real jobs, I expected to hear about drugs, and I've heard about them but one was the abuse of disability. And you know what they basically said was, you get these doctors in their town, everyone knows who they are, mm -hmm. and you walk in, you say, you know, my knee's hurt or whatever, and 45 minutes later, you've got $6,000 a year in disability and a oxycodone. So you know, being a data geek, I wanted to see was this anecdotal and specific to there. Was it widespread? And if widespread, where? You know, because in business, you're used to Seeing, for example, if, if you've got a bank and they've got a bunch of locations, they could tell you the ones that have highest and lowest default rates. If you run a franchise chain with restaurants, you know which ones sell more and less french fries. So I assume that this is something we would have at our fingertips. And the more I delved into it, the more I realized that we haven't, I don't think, done all that we can yet in that area. Because when I looked into it, that wasn't available off the shelf. So. I went and got through all data myself and I looked at it. And you've got 20 counties in Georgia that have got almost three times the state average of their adults on disability. I'm not talking about children, elderly, people with severe disabilities that would keep them from working. I'm talking about working age adults that could be doing so. There's 20 counties with almost three times the state average. If you're used to looking at these things, seeing where they fall on a map, you flop them down and see where they are. 17 of the 20 are contiguous. It's four clusters around the state. You can look at it in a second tell, that's not a normal pattern. Mm -hmm. So I've become hopeful, convicted, that if you take some of the same data analytics techniques to government to go after hard problems like that, to go after problems like teacher turnover. We've got something like a 45% turnover rate in the first three years of your average public school teacher's tenure. If you look at the adoption foster care process, 
30% of folks in our prisons are on that process, yet we've got something like a four-month average tenure caseworkers and a 30% or higher annual turnover rate. These are types of things I think that we can take data and look at and find ways to improve them, to help people's lives, to make tax dollars go further. And where you're talking about safety net programs, make sure those dollars go to the people who need them and deserve them the most. And that, that gets me excited. I mean, I think that's what we should be trying to do is have things work better for less money. That was good wonky. <laughs> when we come back, try. we'll delve further into politics and policy with Clay Tippins running for governor in Georgia. back. It's Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB, the nation's most listened to news talk station. Joining me this evening, Clay Tippins, running for governor as a Republican here in Georgia. Uh, let's, I, I've asked every candidate so far because I, I think it's an issue that doesn't get talked about a lot in Atlanta, but everywhere else it does. Uh, and that is this urban-rural divide in the state where whether it's the transportation issue, the jobs issue, attracting Amazon, uh, there seems to be a real concern with the rest of the state that Atlanta's consuming all the resources at the expense of everyone else. Sure. Um, what would you do? And, and also, have you thought anything about this plan of the state legislature to increase taxes to provide rural broadband? So on that, I mean, this is a real challenge. And if it were an easy thing to solve, it would have been solved a long time ago. So there's a handful of things that would be my focus. You know, the first is, you look at the Savannah port. The estimates are it's a seven to one ROI. Every dollar spent there will bring seven back to the area in some amount of time. Well, Governor Deals left us with a very strong balance sheet, unbelievably so. So in my mind, if you've got a seven to one ROI investment opportunity, especially when that benefits Southeast Georgia, that's commerce arteries will be creeping up by 16. It helps imports and exports, your agriculture community, et cetera. That's something that maybe we should look at digging into our state dollars and getting that port dredging back to the original timeline. It's running like something like two, two and a half years behind. I think that's good for rural Georgia and the rest of the state as well. So that's number one. Number two is rural broadband is a real opportunity. I mean, it's something that you can't, I don't think, have a serious conversation about doing a lot around rural education, rural health care, if there's a lack of connectivity. Because what you need to reach out and diagnose and monitor and treat people, if they don't have immediate access to a good health facility, is you can do it on a mobile device through the air. Well, that requires connectivity. Same thing with education. I mean, most of the great resources in the world now exist outside of a classroom, not just inside the classroom. And to tap into that and provide that customization, you got to have connectivity. And as I mentioned earlier, I was a technology business guy. So I'm pretty familiar not just with rural broadband as a thing, but literally the underlying technologies. And I think that you know the opportunity exists to us is do things through a public-private partnership, focus on unserved areas, and do so so it doesn't become a corporate giveaway program. It stretches your taxpayer dollar the maximum amount, and you get the most bang for your buck in terms of unserved people that we bring online for at least dollars spent. As someone that's worked in that space, I think I've got legitimate claim to be the best person to do that. That's an opportunity as well. The other one is you mentioned Amazon. And we talk about Amazon a lot. We read a lot about Amazon, as we should. 
I think we need an Amazon for rural Georgia. And I'll give you one example of what that might could look like. If you look at, the, let's call it the Trump tax cut for a minute, it took state taxes and now they're not deductible, which that means in states like in New York, California, Washington, Oregon, it means now those very high tax states, the people in those states in some cases just took a 10% or higher wealth cut. That's going to be, again, I use the word catalyst. That's a catalyst for companies in those states to look at relocating to a lower tax state like Georgia. And as I mentioned, I want that to be three-something percent. This is an opportunity for the next governor to go on the road. And we talked about agriculture. Go, for example, and grab timber production capacity. Recruit that using this as a catalyst out of an upstate New York, out of an Oregon, out of a Washington. That is going to be highly synergistic with our forestry business here in Georgia. Those are the types of things that I think that we can do and then we need to be looking at to make sure there's not just an Amazon for Atlanta, but an Amazon for the other industries and an Amazon for rural Georgia. It's a real thing that sits in front of us to do using this tax cut motion as a catalyst. Well, along those lines, one of the complaints I think a lot of people have, and I hear it across party lines, we don't know what the state's proposal to Amazon is because Georgia is one of the few states that doesn't disclose those. But the estimates are about $2 billion in incentives. Um, where do you come down on the need to incentivize to attract businesses versus helping existing businesses? So in my business career, I've been at those tables. I've been in those rooms. I've been part of those sorts of packages, both you know, us proposing them and also assisting clients in assessing them. So more so than my competitors, I think I can say that with some degree of confidence. I understand the ins and outs of those proposals, the ins and outs of those negotiations. I can't possibly say whether we're getting a good deal or not for that. No one can because you have to really see the ins and outs. You have to know how much of the job creation is hard committed versus a soft non-binding target. So, you know, all I can tell you on that is, is I, I've been at those tables. I understand how to do that. And I'm highly confident that I'm the governor candidate that can use the unique experience I've had in business to get the most jobs for Georgia, but get it at the best price point for our tax dollars. I mean, dollars don't grow in trees. They're in limited supply. We have a moral and a fiscal responsibility to get the most out of them. And this is a great example of where I think I'm uniquely well-suited to do that within this context. I want to shift gears here. Um, in 1993, the Supreme Court ruled that the, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment is the one section of the First Amendment that doesn't need strict scrutiny standard and the others do. Congress responded by passing RIFRA saying treat every section of the First Amendment with strict scrutiny. Uh, the other Republicans who are running have signed a pledge saying they would implement RIFRA in Georgia. Um, you're the one candidate who hasn't and wanted to give you a chance to explain why you wouldn't. And I welcome the opportunity. Obviously, when one person does something different from the rest, you've got to ask the question, why? And what's behind that? So a couple things about me. Um, my wife's in the audience. Along with her and my children, my face is the most important thing in my life. I became a believer on March 5th, 1978. So freedom of religion is not just a theoretical thing that's in the Constitution for me. It's, it's a personal thing for me and my family. I want to protect religious freedom. I want to protect it with the same tenacity and visceral commitment that I defended as a seal. I'm not going to take the pledge, and I don't think, and I'm going to explain in a minute, 
why I don't think those two are part and parcel. So, you know, as a governor, first of all, I'm going to approach it with a value system. I'm going to fight to ensure people have religious freedom. That's a whatever it takes mission. But what I'm not going to do is take pledges to sign undrafted legislation, whether it's religious freedom, whether it's taxes. I don't think that's the right leadership model to say what you're going to sign before a bill and all the fine print hits your desk. But again, in the spirit of what I would and wouldn't do, what I will do is veto any legislation that enables suits against people of faith, whatever that faith may be, based on their beliefs, uh, public accommodation acts, that sort of thing. So th those, th that's how I would approach that. Now, the reason I said I don't think that pledge that all my opponents have taken and having a staunch, principled defense of religious freedom is the same thing is because my opponents go to see fundraisers in Atlanta, they close the door, and they say things like, well, when we took that pledge, we had to, it was unfortunate, my arm was twisted, you know I'll never come to that. We just have to tell Christians that to get them to vote for us in May in Republican primary. And as a Christian, that makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to vomit. So just to clarify, though, and you don't have an, an objection to saying that every part of the First Amendment should have strict scrutiny. Look, Eric, if I were to get into a legal discussion with you within 10 seconds, I'll be over <laughs> my head. Let's just go and stipulate yeah. that. I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect religious freedom. There's right. nothing more sacred than religious freedom to every American, no matter which walk of life religion that you come from. So that, that, that's number one. Number two is, and you and I talked about this off camera, again, I believe in responsible, principled leadership. Well, and, and let me cut you off there because I want to pivot to this, to human trafficking. That's right. Because that's an area where none of the other candidates have talked about this issue, and it is the issue nearest and dearest to me as a public policy issue. It does not get attention in the state, particularly when Georgia, North Carolina, a Janet Reno-authored report issued by John Ashcroft in 2001 says Georgia and North Carolina are hotbeds of human trafficking to fund essentially Asian terrorism and Asian mafia. Uh, and it doesn't seem like we take this seriously as a, as a state. In, in whatever amount of time you have on this, go ahead and double it for me. Indulge <laughs> me for a minute. All right. and I, you, I, I mean, if we spend the rest of this conversation You on mentioned this. Janet Reno on this. There are so few things that folks seem to be able to agree on and come at that passionately so. This is one. And the reason why is because this is one of the most pure forms of evil on the planet. Let me tell you an example, and, and I'm going to go to what we can do about it. And again, I think as a SEAL, I bring a unique skill set to that. You also you, potentially bring a unique language as a SEAL, too, and just as a reminder, we're on radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's not my only advice, but that is advice. <laughs> so, look, th they, interviewed, they interviewed a sex trafficker who used to sell heroin, and the two are so tightly tied together. Because what they do is if they give a child a bag of heroin, they get them to take it, and then they've got a leash. If the child won't perform, they pull it back. If the child performs, they give it to them. Okay? That's how that works. They interviewed this guy who had been a heroin dealer. They said, why did you diversify? Why did you get into trafficking children? He says, it's a better business. He said, I can sell a packet of heroin once. I can sell a child eight or ten times a night. That ought to be expunged. I don't know what else to say about that. That is so evil that it just upsets me to talk about it. Now, the other thing about it, if you take an unemotional approach to this, if you weren't 
someone viscerally committed to taking this down, and we can, you should go after it for the secondary effects. So I talked about it being tied to heroin. It's tied to illegal guns. You go decimate the sex trafficking problem, and you're getting a second-order effect on heroin, on other drugs. You're getting a second-order effect on guns. Anytime you can find a problem that you can solve that's evil and bad in and of itself, that is depravity, and then you get a second-order effect on these other hard things to solve, you've got to do whatever it takes to do that. You have to. Now, let's talk about what that looks like. Because on the surface, it seems like a really hard problem. And it, you mentioned it. The other candidates were talking about this. This is something that Lori and I came at from a point of conviction and a point of passion. And when we started talking about it, you know, someone said, well, you know, that's not on the top of your typical top 10 lesson. I don't care. It's that important. And a buddy of mine reached out to me. He and I went through SEAL training about 20 years ago. And he called me and he said, hey, are you running for governor? You're talking about sex trafficking. I said, yeah, I am. He said, I want to come see you and talk about what we're doing. And he got together with some guys, you know, former special operations background, guys that had worked at the various agencies. And, and they did what I've been talking about being doable. They started taking the same methods and techniques that we use to target terminate terrorist networks. And they apply it to human trafficking. And it's a solvable problem. And I'll tell you why. Do you know why this has exploded? The internet. Because what you do is you put a picture of a 13-year-old on the internet. And that's the fingerprint. It all ties back to that because that's what that buyer's buying. And the tragic thing, just to upset you even more, you get a child doing that for three, four, five years, they're mangled looking. They age 30 years and three because of the drugs, because of what they're being put through. In some cases, they use the exact same picture for when they're 12 or 13 or 14 years old. So what you can do is you can scrape these sites, you can build an ever-growing database of these pictures, recognition technology, and then you tie it in all the burner phone numbers. You tie it into the various addresses. Those are the same phones, by the way, to sell heroin. And you use that. That's how we take down networks of terrorists. And you can do it on this problem as well. But there's so many hard problems that you can make a 10% difference. This is a 90% sort of opportunity. And in and, and Metro Atlanta, it's the number one place for it in America. It's estimated to be a $300 million business per year. Now, here's why it matters. We are the sanctuary staging ground for the rest of the country. We tackle it here. We do everyone in Alabama, Virginia, and Kansas a favor as well. That's why this matters. Eric Erickson here talking with Clay Tippins, running for governor in Georgia. When we come back, why him as opposed to the other candidates running for governor? Folks, I wanted to do a quick timeout to tell you about this week's sponsor, Blue Apron. You probably have heard of Blue Apron. You've seen their advertisements. I have to tell you, I have tried several of their competitors and then tried Blue Apron and it is fantastic. Um, a lot of people, you're confused because there are so many of these services out there. If you don't know what Blue Apron is, it is a great company that sends you recipes to your house. And not just the recipes, but all the ingredients. In fact, Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. You guys know I like to cook, and Blue Apron makes it really easy. And they have great plans to choose from. A two-person meal plan, a family meal plan, a wine plan. My family does the family meal plan. We get two meals a week. 
for four people. We've done the uh, soy glazed chicken. We've done the um, beef medallions with pan sauce. Last week, we did the Mexican casserole. It's all delicious, and all the ingredients come in the box. They make it really easy for you. In fact, ours shows up on a Thursday uh, by FedEx, and we're ready to cook, and it's good to go. Really delicious recipes, easy to follow along as well. If you're hesitant about cooking, you want to try something a little more than the basics, Blue Apron is the way to go, and Blue Apron is treating listeners of the Eric Erickson show to $30 off your first order. If you visit blueapron.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. And think of it this way. Even the federal government says they want to model a plan after Blue Apron. So go to blueapron.com slash Eric. I'm Eric Erickson here in the WSB Live Lounge with Clay Tippins, candidate for governor in Georgia. In our last couple of minutes here, you've got five Republicans running, two Democrats running. Why you and not them? So I said earlier, it, for me, it starts out with, I believe that this next decade of 2020s will be one of the most important and transformative decades in our nation's history, in this state's history, because of the pressure from debt combined with how technology and medicines left government behind. So we've got a moment. The question is, what do you do with the moment? If you take the folks I'm running against on both sides, it's, it's between 50 and 60 years of combined political experience between them. I've got none. I've never run for office. So, you know, that's a choice. You either think you've looked at your ballot before and you thought, you know what's missing here? It's more status quo political experience. People that just see this thing go, I've seen this one before. Let's do it the same way. Give me more time. Give me more power. If that's what you look at when you see your ballot, I'm not the guy. But if you think that we're in a time that matters, where there's catalysts that enable big changes, big improvements, take big chunks out of the budget, give it to a tax cut, reinvest in the most important things like third grade reading, infrastructure, we talked about sex trafficking. I think that what's required in a moment like that is one, a track record of execution. I've had a track record of execution in business, had a track record of execution as a SEAL, and that brings a unique perspective. It brings a unique urgency to that. And I wouldn't have put my family through this process if I hadn't concluded that that was what was missing in this field and uniquely well-suited to this particular moment in time. I don't think I'm supposed to be governor of Georgia every time. I don't think that I'd be the right guy during every cycle. I think that I'm called to do this and that my background is uniquely suited to this particular moment in time and this particular set of challenges and opportunities. And, and I'm the only one with that background and the only one that can come in with a fresh perspective. I'm not beholden any special interest. I'm not walking in with views on what's possible and what's not possible. We're going to do whatever it takes to tackle some of these problems and do so boldly and aggressively. Clay Tippins, good luck to you on the campaign trail. And thanks very much for taking time with us. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you.